All right, we are back. The other day I was asked by, I forget which, one of several news agencies I've been subscribing to off and on to uh, pony up. I needed to pay them more money. And you know, I was just slightly irked at first, as I think we all are when you think, oh, you got to pay for this. But then it occurred to me that for what I'm getting, these news services that are, you know, that in, in many cases like The Guardian, not to mention the LA Times, Washington Post, New York Times, etc., are not doing all that well financially. If you want to be able to go to a news source besides what, you know, your cousin Joe sent you on Facebook, it'd be good to keep these things up and running. And yet, in the technology section of the week, a couple weeks back, there was the headline media. Should Google, comma, Facebook pay for news? Well, we can answer that, by the way. Yes, yes, they should. Down under in Australia, they've introduced a bill last week that will make Google, Facebook, and other tech platforms pay for news links. The tech industry initially saw the proposed law as little more than an excuse to force them to write a big check with Rupert Murdoch's name on it. Facebook apparently even thought it could tell the Australian government to shove it, blocking Australians from posting any news links on its site. But after a few days of brinkmanship, both Facebook and Google are at the bargaining table negotiating how much they will pay to Australian news outlets after the law's enactment. I have to say, many years ago when I traveled to Australia, I was totally impressed by their newspapers as being possibly the only examples you could find in the world that were clearly worse than America. But then, let's face it, Rupert Murdoch had been started out down there and had was way ahead of the curve in what he did to news coverage. Yeah, it is somewhat scandalous what the Huffington Post and others do in terms of going out and, uh, you know, strip mining <laughs> news sources and, and not paying them and saying, well, we're giving you exposure. We're getting your name out there. You should be happy. Which reminds me of musicians who used to complain that they were trying, people try to entice them to play for one of their gigs and saying, well, you see this, this gives you exposure. And the musicians were usually like, well, we'd, we'd prefer money. Sounding off on this topic was John Chachas, who's founder and managing partner of Methuselah Advisors, reportedly a financial advisory firm specializing in media and digital content. Writing in the Chicago Tribune, Mr. Chachas said, The daily newspaper has been stolen by digital platforms which use the content but pay nothing for the privilege. This digital theft has been unwittingly supported by algorithmically herded consumers who have been trained to expect content on demand at a mere cost of a few keystrokes. To them, the idea of paying for news is, is as puzzling an anachronism as Thomas Jefferson's powdered wig. Notes he, in a race to the bottom, publishers now chase digital traffic with controversial and partisan clickbait rather than the reasoned and substantial reporting necessary for an informed electorate. Complacency, or fear of being left out of the digital ecosystem by local journalists, is partly responsible for allowing unrestricted access and use of their content for far too long. Today, these digital platforms represent as much as 60% or more of digital traffic for some news creators. It is an impossible challenge for even large dailies such as the Chicago Tribune to tell Google, if you don't pay us, then your search customer cannot see our content any longer. Local publishers have very little leverage. And indeed, the downsizing of local news coverage in America has been astonishing. Since 2004, more than 1,800 newspapers have closed in the United States. Said John Chachas, it is long past time the American publishers were paid a fair and appropriate license payment for access to their product. The governments of Australia, France, and now Canada 
have taken steps in recent weeks to force such payments with Google and Facebook threatening to withdraw all search and social media in reply. He concludes by noting that if Congress fails to act, the economic cost will be nothing compared to the damage to the nation's electorate. It's time to acknowledge the essential role of fact-checked local journalism in our democratic society. And there's been quite a bit of pushback on the long overdue removal of Donald Trump from the likes of Twitter and Facebook. The Washington Post notes that misinformation on social media about election fraud plummeted after Trump was banned from Facebook and Twitter. In the week after Trump's Twitter feed went dark on January 8th, conversations about election fraud dropped 73% across a number of social media sites, from 2.5 million to 688,000 mentions, according to the analytics of Zignal Labs. And although The Economist was making such noise as noting that regulation of free speech should not be outsourced to a few tech tycoons, which is a pretty idiotic way of framing it, their argument that, you know, who makes these decisions? The tech industry's concentration means that a few unelected and unaccountable executives are in control. Well, yeah, hello, yeah, they are. This is a slippery slope of censorship that all media outlets must face. I mean, we face it on this program. What do you choose to talk about? What do you reference when you talk about things that are going on? What do you recommend people do? The notion that these tech companies are, hey, just, just providing a service, just, you know, just passing along what people are saying is just, is just not going to fly. As we could see on what happened on January 6th, when the nation's capital was overrun by a mob incited to violence by what appears on social media. Economists also noted that the role of social networks, payment processors, and infrastructure providers as a police force of the internet is not new. Gab, a far-right social network, was dropped by GoDaddy, which registers domain names after it became clear that an anti-Semitic mass shooter had used the service to broadcast hateful content. It had long before been barred from app stores. It had long, it had long before been barred from app stores. Cloudflare, a famously neutral infrastructure firm that helps protect websites from cyber attacks, last year booted out 8chan, an online forum, for its role in other mass shootings. In 2017, it pulled the plug on the Daily Stormer, a neo-Nazi website. Admittedly, this does put some on the left in the unfamiliar position of celebrating corporate power to determine what people can say, and much of the right in the unfamiliar position of lamenting that fact. The fact is we all have limited rights to so-called free speech. You can't yell fire in a crowded theater. Freedom of speech does not include your ability to incite a crowd to riot. And we'll have plenty more to say about that in you know, future shows, as we have in past shows. There's a lot of folks right now that are calling for unity in the United States. Same people in many cases that have been spewing hate against Democrats and liberals, et cetera, et cetera, for the past many years. And, and by the way, we should mention at this juncture the passing of Rush Limbaugh. Mr. Miller, do you have some appropriate music for this? Pulling out some articles we had on Limbaugh that we used in the show previously. This one goes back to April of last year. This comes from Newsweek.com, who noted that 
Conservative radio talk show host Rush Limbaugh suggested that Dr. Anthony Fauci and other medical experts on the White House Coronavirus Task Force are, quote, Hillary Clinton sympathizers, unquote, with a vendetta against President Donald Trump. On the collection of hot air known as the Rush Limbaugh Show, Rush claimed that Fauci had made a thumbs-up gesture at a coronavirus briefing toward ABC reporter Jonathan Carl, president of the White House Correspondents Association. Limbaugh said that Fauci's gesture was an approval of Carl allowing a, quote, China-sympathetic, unquote, reporter into the briefing. Limbaugh added, we know one thing has not changed, that these people's desire above everything else is to get rid of Donald Trump. And of course, with Limbaugh's help, Fauci not completely agreeing with Trump's medical opinions had not gone over well with some in the public, which prompted Fauci having to be given increased security detail due to threats from members of the public against him and his family. Writing in the DailyBeast.com, Aaron Gloria Ryan said, Conventional etiquette dictates that we do not speak ill of the dead. Well, we're going to throw that one out the window for Rush. But noted Ryan, that never stopped Rush himself. After Kurt Cobain's suicide in 1994, the talk show host Pioneer called the young singer a worthless shred of human debris. At the peak of the AIDS epidemic, Limbaugh would mirthfully recite the names of dead gay men while playing... I'll never love this way again. Of course, he was no less cruel to the living. Women were sluts if they wanted publicly funded contraception and called them castrating fem-Nazis if they wanted careers. Meanwhile, the 12-year-old Chelsea Clinton was called ugly, quote, the White House dog, unquote. And he once instructed a black caller to, quote, take that bone out of your nose, unquote. Writing in nymag.com, Jonathan Chait said, Like his fan and imitator Donald Trump, Rush Limbaugh was curiously devoid of any skill at argument. Opposing points of view were dismissed not with logic and evidence, but by brute assertion, mockery, and resentment. He was the voice of the conservative id, paranoid and belligerent, and it came to dominate not only the right-wing media, but the Republican Party itself. The line from Rush Limbaugh to Donald Trump is about an inch long. You know, we love quoting a good letter to the editor when one turns up. And here's one from the East Bay Times from a man named Kurt Bodargas from Danville, California. He noted that Donald Trump and Rush Limbaugh exhibited many similarities far beyond being corpulent white male multimillionaires. Both wield an unlimited power to shape public opinion. Trump enjoyed the bully pulpit of the presidency and unrestricted access to social media. Limbaugh aired on more than 600 radio stations. Both Trump and Limbaugh eschewed long-established norms of truth, honesty, civility, and fairness. Both targeted Democrats, liberals, racial and religious minorities, immigrants, LGBT folks, and the disabled. Both relied heavily on insults, ridicule, and name-calling. Both exhibited paranoia, narcissism, egotism, and bigotry. Both acquired millions of followers whose devotion to their idol echoed that of past religious cults. Both had a major impact on American society, and it was not positive. Writing in the New York Times, Ross Dohat said, Limbaugh was a true pioneer who created a right-wing media infrastructure of enormous reach and energy, which I have to stop and say, no, he did not. He was hand-picked by people to go on stations and promote his message in the wake of the United States getting rid of the Fairness Doctrine. The right wing of the Republican Party saw a great opportunity to get their views put out there by somebody who would do what 
Limbaugh did. And I know that when Paul Harvey, that radio icon of so many years and figure on the right, was looking on a talent search for such an individual, he stumbled into Sacramento and found Rush Limbaugh over at KFBK. Rush Limbaugh did not build a network of 600 stations from which he was heard. He was handed it on a silver platter, to which I would add, and now you know the rest of the story. Anyway, Rush Limbaugh, a bad guy, a dumb guy, a hypocrite who made fun of people who had a drug problem when he himself was strung out on OxyContin. By the way, if you or anybody else you know ever gets caught with 10,000 OxyContin, you're going to go to jail. Rush Limbaugh went into rehab. But as much as we may despise a figure like Rush Limbaugh, who, who deserves being despised, we have to flip it around and look what passes for progressive voices in this country and at least occasionally stop and say, now, wait a minute. Case in point, New York Times star science reporter Donald McNeil Jr. resigned several weeks ago after more than 150 newsroom colleagues protested his use of the N-word during a 2019 Times-sponsored trip to Peru with high school students. Times leadership said McNeil, 67, would be disciplined, but not fired after learning that he spoke the word. He spoke that word in a discussion about whether it was wrong for a teen to use it in a video. A discussion about whether a teen was right to use it in a video, and he uses the word. In the wake of this, colleagues said they were outraged that he did not suffer more severe punishment. So McNeil resigned, saying he now realized he'd shown extraordinarily bad judgment. McNeil joined the paper in 1976, earned acclaim for his coverage of COVID-19, and the Times nominated him for a Pulitzer Prize. His resignation sparked internal dissension with defenders saying he's been forced out by a mob. Gee, do you think? Let us keep in mind that he used the word in a discussion of racist language and, and the appropriateness of using it in a video. The Washington Examiner, not a paper we would agree with too terribly often, said this illustrates how millennials educated in the safe space of left-wing universities are now forcing a hypersensitive social justice ideology on their employers, social media, and everyone. I don't know, we've been reporting on this stuff for a long time. I think it was about 15 years ago in this program when we talked about a, a staffer who worked for Marion Barry, the Washington, D.C. mayor at the time, had to resign because after reviewing the budget for the city, he commented that it looked pretty niggardly. And although the allegedly shocked people around him who were then educated as to the correct use of that English word stood their ground and said, no, it was still inappropriate for him to use it because they misunderstood what he said. Keep in mind that the Rush Limbaugh's of the world are having a field day with the fact that, among other things, Hasbro has decided that they will no longer market Mr. Potato Head because, after all, the plastic potato had a Mr. Potato Head and his wife Mrs. Potato Head. And apparently the binary nature of this is just rubbing some people the wrong way. So it is that Hasbro will now market the toy under the name Potato Head. And a spokesman over at Hasbro <laughs> explained that culture has evolved 
adding that Mr. and Mrs. setup was limiting for both gender identity and family structure. The worst part about this for me is to see that, you know, you, you, I would hope that some people would say, well, that, that's stupid. That's, that's going a bit far at this point. But no, no, some are doubling down. Writing in RollingStone.com, E.J. Dixon said, a plastic, googly-eyed potato, that's hardly the paragon of masculinity. Sir, why are white conservative men so upset? They're frantic that they're losing their majority status and power and yearn for the bygone days when men were men, women were women, and everybody, even toys, knew their place. Ms. McMillan? Yeah, I'm sorry. That's cuckoo. I'm sorry. I don't think it's just white conservative men that are looking at this and getting upset. I think it's people with common sense. And in further raw meat being fed to conservatives, we have the fact that Dr. Seuss, the Dr. Seuss Enterprises is now going to stop publishing six titles that portray people in ways that are hurtful and wrong, they say. Now, I've seen some of the art that Dr. Seuss wrote in his younger days, many, many decades ago, and, and I can see they'd have a point on some of this. But, my God, does the city of Fairfax have to ban for the two-mile stretch that passes through Fairfax, the name of Sir Francis Drake Boulevard. It's a very, very long stretch of street, and you know, t- to drive along and have its name change for two miles and then go back to Sir Francis Drake just seems ridiculous. Meanwhile, in San Francisco, the Board of Education voted 6-1 to one a few weeks back to rename 44 schools honoring Abraham Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln, George Washington, and sitting California Senator Dianne Feinstein, and other prominent figures accusing them of racism or sexism. Washington, Thomas Jefferson, and James Madison were marked for removal for their ownership of slaves, while Lincoln, the man who put out the Emancipation Proclamation, was faulted for his role in the execution of 38 Native Americans in the Dakota War of 1862. The elementary school named after Feinstein was included because... When she was mayor of San Francisco, she replaced a a vandalized Confederate flag that was part of a display outside of City Hall. For its part, the school board is reportedly considering renaming one of the schools after Grateful Dead frontman Jerry Garcia, to which I would add, and of course they are. Apparently Sir Walter Raleigh is in trouble over in the UK as well. Writing in the London Times... Calvin Robinson noted that trendy, woke ideals are replacing British values in our schools. A middle school in northern England has renamed its schoolhouse for modern activists in place of historical figures like Lord Nelson, Sir Francis Drake, and Sir Walter Raleigh. They've been dumped for environmental activist Greta Thunberg, girls' education activist Malala Yousafzai, and Marcus Rashford, a Manchester Union soccer star, but also a campaigner against child hunger. Mr. Bullen has to ask, yeah, well, who's pro-child hunger? I don't know, folks. We, we, I just, just can't help but be concerned about what's happening in our universities. And so is Brett Stevens writing with the New York Times, who said, to see how woke culture has transformed American universities, consider a recent incident at Smith College. Student Umo Kanute was eating lunch in an empty dorm lounge when campus security told her to leave. Kanute alleged racism saying in a Facebook post that started a national firestorm, all I did was be black. A white janitor she blamed for summoning security was put on leave. The university president issued profuse apologies, and the college required staff to take anti-racism training. 
But as the story in the Times was detailed later, the narrative of racist harassment of a minority student in an elitist white institution turned out to be false. Canute had gone into a dorm that was closed for the summer, and security had been told to tell all unauthorized people to leave. Nevertheless, anti-racism consultants hired by Smith pressed all white employees to confess their bigotry and ask them intrusive questions about their parents' racial attitudes. One administrator quit in protest. Why have racial tensions boiled over at so many of the nation's liberal arts colleges when students are steeped in, quote, critical race theory, unquote, and, quote, microaggressions, unquote, it's not surprising that they see racism everywhere. The thing is, it's not like racism isn't everywhere. It is everywhere. But can we keep this real? I mean, I have to point out that in the wake of millions of people taking the streets last summer to demand police reforms, which obviously in many cases are certainly warranted, this turned into far-left calls to, quote, defund the police, unquote. In its briefing section, The Week magazine noted this created massive headaches for Democratic candidates in the 2020 election, though very few police departments actually saw budget cuts. And since I'm mouthing off about stuff, which I guess we pretty much do most every program, I'd like to express the opinion that one thing we do not need in this country is a January 6th commission. We totally understand the desire to go after Trump after his acquittal for his second impeachment. Representative Madeline Dean from Pennsylvania said it was powerful to hear the 57 guilties, and then it was puzzling to hear and see Mitch McConnell stand and say not guilty, and the minutes later stand again and say he was guilty of everything. It has been, I think, an American experience that blue ribbon commissions put together to investigate things don't make any difference. They tend to cover stuff up. The prototype of all this, of course, is the Warren Commission, which looked into the assassination of JFK in 1963-64. That commission was tasked with assuring the American public that Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone and the evidence against him was strong enough that had he lived to stand trial, he would have been convicted. So, to the surprise of absolutely nobody on earth, that's what they concluded in their report. More recently, we've had 9-11 commissions, We've had commissions looking into the economic meltdown in 2008, where Phil Angelides managed to, to find that, well, you know, you know, some things that were done here were probably not advisable. 9-11 investigation managed to leave out some uh, key data, some, <laughs> I think, 30 pages of key data, which is still classified about uh, the role of the Saudis in what went down that day. And by that, I mean members of the Saudi royal family. So no, we don't need a January 6th commission to look into things. What we need are prosecutions. It's illegal to incite a riot. No matter what Congress may do in regards to impeachment, it's still a criminal offense. We have laws against it. We have courts. We have police. Trump can be criminally prosecuted and no doubt should be criminally prosecuted. Writing about this in the New York Times, Reed Epstein and Lisa Lehrer under the headline, Dems Determined to Pressure Biden to Investigate Trump, they noted that 12 years ago, when the last Democratic president took office, he did not seek broad inquiries into officials from the previous administration for its use of torture practices or for domestic eavesdropping, nor did he pursue prosecutions of Wall Street executives for crimes that led to the 2008 financial crisis. Aside from some grumbling 
Barack Obama's party went along in the name of national unity. This time, Democrats who have chafed at President Donald Trump's behavior for four years are not willing to be so accommodating. They want to hold him, his family, and his enablers accountable for acts they believe didn't just break norms, but broke the law. To which we say, hear, hear. I think it's fair to say that the number of state and federal and probably local laws that Donald Trump has broken uh, should keep prosecutors busy for some time if they've got the political will to move on it. Some congressmen are suing former President Trump, alleging that he incited the deadly insurrection, like Representative Benny Thompson of Mississippi. Anyway, refer you back to our uh, previous discussion with Stephen Harper about some of the possible prosecutions of Donald J. Trump. Uh, he summarized some of that pretty darn well. A couple of minutes we have left, I was hoping to do an obituary or two, particularly that of George Schultz, who passed away at age 100. As a man holding four different cabinet posts under several different administrations, uh, you knew he, he cut a figure in Washington, D.C., and just about everywhere else he went. But I was unaware of the important role he played in getting Ronald Reagan to talk to Mikhail Gorbachev about nuclear arms reductions. And that I want to segue into the Ronald Reagan four-part documentary on Netflix that Mr. McMillan turned me on to that we also don't have time to discuss today. So running out of time as I am, I'm going to instead do the obituary of Carla Walenda. Carla Walenda passed away in Florida at the age of 85. She was a member of the Flying Walendas, the High Wire Act. She was the last surviving child of the famed troop's founder. And I, I just have to excerpt from her obit, which noted that in 1951... At age 15, her dad told her she could join the High Wire Act if she could do a headstand on top of the family's seven-person pyramid. And she was able to join the High Wire Act later that year. Carla Melinda left the family act, which often appeared in the Barnum and Bailey Circus, to form her own troupe. The next season, two of the Melindas were killed in an accident while performing the pyramid. Melinda rejoined the family troupe in 1965, replacing an aunt who died doing a solo act. Her husband, Richard Guzman, died in 1972 when he fell 60 feet during a performance in West Virginia. Her dad died in 1978, falling while walking a wire across a street in Puerto Rico. Nerded to obituary still, she would not be deterred from performing. She told the Sarasota Herald Tribune in 2014, accidents can happen any place. I have to make a living. This is the only way I know or want to. I've done waitress work and hated every minute of it. Why should I go and do a job that I hate? Well, she has a point, but I don't know of any waitresses that have fallen from their death from the high wire. Anyway, the Flying Londons were a big deal at one point for a while. Anyway, when I was a kid, I, I remember seeing the Melendas on TV, and I'm glad to hear that some of them are still with us. It was noted that her son, Rick Melinda, was the one that informed social media about the passing of his mom. And yes, we're glad to note that Carla passed away of old age. Now this girl that I love, she was handsome. I tried all I knew her to please. But I could not please her one quarter so well as the man on the flying trapeze. He'd fly through the air with the greatest of ease. A daring young man on the flying trapeze. His movements were graceful for girls he could please. And my love he has stolen away. 
This program was produced by Edward McMillan. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm your host, Douglas Everett. We hope, like I say, in the weeks to come to bring you Craig Unger and talk about his fascinating book, American Compromat, and possibly Lou Cannon. We lined up Lou Cannon to appear on the show many years ago, but did not execute. But his book, President Reagan, The Role of a Lifetime, I'm sure featured prominently in that documentary on Netflix, and we will, again, reach out to him and see if we can get him on the show. We think he'd be a fascinating interviewee. That wraps it up. We'll see you next week. We are going to have a show next week, so we will see you next week. Some months after this, I went to a hall, was greatly surprised to see there on the wall a bill in red letters which did my heart call that she was appearing with him, the rotter. He taught her gymnastics and dressed her in tights to help him to live at his ease. And he made her assume a masculine name, and now she goes on the trapeze. She floats through the air with the greatest of ease. You think her a man on the flying trapeze. She does all the work while he takes his ease, and that's what became of my love.